You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Martin, did you ever play tennis? I did quite badly, actually, Carl, but, um, you know, I, I had my moments and, and um, got a couple over the net. Talk me through it. So you, you've got a couple over the net, you've broken a string or two in your day. What do you do when you break your string in your racket? Oh, curse a little bit. Um, chuck it to the side of the court, the, the, the court, I suppose, and look for where you might find the next one. What would you do? Well, it's a, it's a good point. So you don't throw your racket away. When you break a string, you then take it to the shop and they restring it for you. So I was, it was, I was 18. It was 1980-something. I was playing a lot of tennis and recognizing that most of us who we were students at the time couldn't get to the racket restringing shop. So I thought, here's an opportunity. Why isn't there a mobile racket restringing service? So I got my 1973 Toyota Corolla all badged up. And um, went and picked up tennis rackets from local tennis clubs, started a brand called The Racket Man, and became Victoria's largest r- r- mobile racket restringing business at age 18. Now, I make that point because not because it was incredibly successful, it was actually a pretty good way to make money through university, but because it was just a great example of looking at the status quo and finding an opportunity to do it differently that benefited everyone. So everyone, everyone won through that process. So I look at what we do with the Culture Institute, what we do at HeadX, and I'm really, I'm really excited about those leaders that are identifying the status quo and what they can do to change things for good. Well, I think that's such a great metaphor for what we're about as HeadX, isn't it? And what we've been trying to look back at at the end of our third year now of interviews with leaders and what we're going to be even more focused on in 2023 <laughs> as we look even more widely at leaders. And, and that couldn't be more timely, Carl, in terms of you know, the, the announcement of, of a university's accord and a review of the ARC is recognising that lifelong learning and diversity in students and finding some solutions to our the funding of our research ecosystem is going to need different ways of doing things than we've fallen upon in the past. So we're going to move into our third year shortly of HEDEX. I know we've had a lot of great leaders on, on the programme. I know we've got another interview today that's going to be Fascinating to see from one of the bigger bigger brands in the sector. Um, there's a couple of other big things happening, though, in the sector at the moment. Well, the, the big things are these review processes and the fact that as, as Andrew Parfitt, the Vice Chancellor of UTS, and our guest today will go on to be quizzed on and give some very exciting answers about it. Um, the, the accord is very much focused on how we bring about more diversity in our student body and serve the needs of a democratised need for access to university education and to much to a great extent that's linked to the growing demand for lifelong learning and how we provide for that for universities that have been largely set up for school leavers and face-to-face attendance Mm. so i think that's one of our really big issues and the second is we've got huge ambitions and rightly so for research in 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 australian universities and in australian um society generally we've found a way of of funding that in the past through fee income largely from international students for a long time but those routes have have dried up for obvious reasons over the last couple of years 
and finding new ways of keeping a re redesigned, regenerated, rejuvenated research ecosystem funded is is another dominant issue of the time. And Andrew has some great things to say about both of those things. And we'll hear from Andrew just after this short message from our sponsor. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Today's guest on HEDEX is Professor Andrew Parfit, and Andrew has been the Vice-Chancellor and President at University of Technology Sydney since November 2021, after nearly five years as UTS Provost before that. And, and prior to that, he spent five years as Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at the University of Newcastle, and that followed more than 13 years working in and then heading up research and telecoms research at University of South Australia and CSIRO in Adelaide. A while ago, Andrew hosted a research and innovation showcase with guest speaker Ed Husick, minister, our new minister for industry and science. And that event also saw the launch of the Australian Quantum Software Network involving a number of universities and business partners. Andrew, welcome to HEDEX. Good to be here, Martin. Andrew, after an introduction like that, um, I, I want to go back to that UTS Vice Chancellor's Innovation Showcase that you you hosted. You, in, in the introduction to that event, you talked about a number of interesting topics, and it included um, the importance starting with Indigenous knowledge in our ecosystem and your university, coming all the way up to the the launch of a new network in one of, I guess, what we'd have to say is one of the most contemporary and future oriented technologies in quantum computing. I wonder if taking your introduction to that event as a starting point in our conversation today, I wonder if you can paint a picture for us of how you see that UTS has evolved as a research university and how have the areas of your research capability and your approach to research changed as a university during its life, particularly during your time there? That's a very big question, Martin. It's, uh, I, I think um, one of the important things around UTS is ethos, if you like, is that we're a really connected university. I talk about a university that looks outward rather than inwards. Uh, and I talk about uh, a university that uh, is creating and disseminating knowledge for the good of society. And that really infuses what our academic staff do. Um, we we have a reputation as a, as a technology institution. So clearly, we've uh, invested strongly in engineering, science, IT, uh, particularly with facilities and so forth. But it's not just about the technology itself. And this is where UTS has really um, evolved a place in the, uh, the higher ed ecosystem in Australia, and particularly in research, is that technology infuses all of the professions of the future and the knowledge we create in those areas as well needs to take account of that disruption and the opportunity that's provided by technologies, whether it's in law, um, whether it's in business, whether it's in the creative industries, all of these in one form or another benefit from thinking differently about a world that has uh, a much larger reliance on uh, on technologies of all sorts of different things, whether it's uh, it's just simply digital interaction or whether it's uh, virtual vented reality. So that, that really has been at the centrepiece of, uh, uh, of UTS's definition of what, what it looks like as a university of technology. 
And um, a lot of mention of that technology focus there. And in, and in your introduction to the event, going back to that again, you talked about the general skills crisis facing the nation, the globe, and I'm sure facing Sydney and New South Wales, and made particular reference to the lack of talent available in the IT industry. And for someone who I've known to be so involved in the education of engineers and scientists and technologists across three institutions now, I wonder, I wonder how you would describe the ebbs and flows of graduate demand in these fields and what we can do in our positions in universities to match out and even out graduate supply and demand for national skills in total more effectively and, and across some of these critical disciplines. There are a range of different approaches to that. Uh, first of all, fundamentally, you know, we educate undergraduate and postgraduate students in those disciplines, so we have large numbers of students wanting to become engineers in various fields and large numbers of students who are looking at uh, uh, whether they shift professions as opportunities arise. But one of the, the changes that we've seen, I think, in recent years, and you know, maybe longer than just recent years, is the, uh, the shift away from just thinking about uh, individuals and even corporations developing their skills um, in, in chunks of time, a th three or four year undergraduate degree, a two year master's degree, um, really shift towards a lifetime of learning and the different ways in which you engage with universities to acquire skills, knowledge. Um, and there's a change in, in attitude as well, I think, amongst students. Um, and, and we've talked around this, this a lot. Uh, we're not really preparing students for 30 years in one profession and 30 years with one pa package of uh, competencies and capabilities. We're really preparing students to shift around uh, a lot. And we surveyed our business students a few years ago and found that nearly 60% of them didn't want to just simply go into a ready-made job. They wanted to at least contemplate the possibility that they would create a business and that they would, uh, they would work there, which of course, if you think about IT, to your question, I IT uh, is a business that uh, obviously has big players in it, but there's a very, very large number of small businesses uh, and new businesses that come and go there. So, so the dynamic of the businesses has changed. And that means that universities and the way that we educate people to take part in that, that exciting future changes as well. Oh, very interesting comments on the place of lifelong learning and the dynamics of business and technology environments. Just I might do, do, delve into that a little bit further in that. You're talking about your students seeing new businesses. I wonder how we and you as a leader of an Australian university might see new products, new markets, new business models. How, how important do you believe it is that universities look to new products, new markets, new business models in evolving our course and, and learning offerings in the future? And do you have some plans in place to investigate and implement those at UTS at the moment? Quite a few. Our, our, our strategy, um, which we put in place um, a couple of years before the pandemic hit and the disruption that that caused, but we've been progressing towards it in some ways, uh, foreshadow those sorts of changes, the need to uh, uh, think about how we engage with students and learners differently. So apart from 45,000 enrolled students, uh, we have another 15,000 learners who just engage with short courses and so forth, whether it's um, through offerings that we do in collaboration with businesses or whether it's just looking at uh, uh, short forms of um, uh, of getting interesting new information 
largely in areas that we have real strength. So, uh, you know, you can get information from anywhere, but people would come to UTS because of our standing in in areas from everything from data science and mathematics through to um, the legal profession and um, uh, some of the social justice work that we do with communities. So really, the what we do has changed. The business model bit interests me because um, universities in Australia are very fundamentally set up around the two pillars of research and coursework teaching, if you like, those bachelor degrees and master's degrees, um, and have developed, you know, there's a very significant overhead cost of delivering those. So the business model for that, um, for the micro-credentials of the future and the short courses and all of those things is still unclear. The reality is, though, we have to engage with it. Um, because that's the way in which uh, the students want to want to work, and I'm, I'm encouraged that um, the government is just about to engage in the process, which was originally called an accord process, uh, but is looking at a, essentially a fundamental review of universities, what they do, why they do it, how they do it, um, and that offers, I think, some possibility of having a discussion around uh, how the business model might evolve. But as I say, it's unclear to me at the moment that uh, some of our business models are sustainable and there aren't too many alternatives. International students have formed a big part of the financial viability of um, universities. And of course, international students bring so many benefits um, from the, uh, the the global network and connections they have to the, um, the diversity that we have within our student community. Um, the economy, we, we've talked about it as a contributor to the economy. And I think finally, we might get around to talking about international students as um, uh, part of the solution to some of the skills gaps that we were talking about earlier, Martin, because why would we not join up skilled migration with international students who are being educated in our own high quality institutions across the country? You've touched on international students there. And I, I imagine UTS was one of those quite possibly you'll tell me if I've got this wrong maybe most hardest hit by the interaction to international students in recent times given your location and your strengths in in, in this area if if that is the case what are you doing to recover international student numbers now to reinstate the pipeline that got interrupted or alternatively are you looking to find alternative sources of revenue to fund the research and innovation activities at UTS you're right in saying that we were hit hard by the um, the closure of the borders and uh, the timing of that didn't help either at the beginning of 2020 um, we responded by uh, trying to find ways of continuing to engage students. We obviously, like all universities, pivoted, uh, that word's been used a lot, to uh, uh, to forms of online learning. But it's not the, the comprehensive experience that we offer to students, international and otherwise. The campus experience is very strong at UTS. Um, we invested very strongly on it in, in that. So, but we did support students. Um, we opened offshore learning centers with some of our Chinese partners and Vietnamese partners to try and provide a campus environment and other supports. And we managed to retain quite a number of international students. But you know, over the course of the um, probably the five years from 2020 through to 2023, we would have lost about um, or at least half a billion dollars worth of revenue from international students. And the number of um, uh, international students hasn't recovered to pre-pandemic levels. But I have to say, and this is really a testament to the quality of Australia's education system, demand for the Australian education from a variety of countries is now back to being very strong. 
So application numbers are strong for people who want to come here. Obviously, some countries like China at the moment, uh, uh, students haven't fully returned, and we're hopeful that, that might happen next year. Um, increasing numbers from uh, from South Asia, uh, new countries starting to look at the possibility of, uh, of what Australian education might look like. So that diversification, which we've all talked about for uh, more than a decade, uh, is almost happening as we speak. The other thing that's happening is we're starting to innovate in some of the models. If online education may in fact start to appear as a uh, as a real viable option for some countries where it hasn't in the past. Back back to your innovation showcase. There was a great focus in that event and the discussion around it, and as part of it, on our, our research and innovation ecosystem. Got another big question for you here, Andrew. I, I wonder if you, I'm sure you have, I know I know you well enough to know you, you will have done, have developed your, uh, your own personal vision for what you'd like Australia's research and innovation ecosystem to be. And I wonder if you can describe that to us succinctly and, and maybe outline that with not only the university's accord, but with a review of the ARC in play as well, what, what policy changes you see would make the vision that you have more likely to be realised? We've got an enormous assets in Australia in um, research organisations like CSIRO and um, in, in various government departments, uh, not so much as probably we'd, we'd like in, uh, uh, in enterprise, but the interest in, uh, in innovating is, is absolutely there. And then we have this enormous asset of universities that is so complicated um, in terms of its accessibility, its funding, uh, everything from fundamental research um, funded from competitive government research grants through to IP and commercialization of IP um, that, that will go into industry. It is a very complicated ecosystem that has organically evolved over time, taking up opportunities. So in reality, and this is really hard, I think it's hard for governments, it's hard for uh, players in the ecosystem to to see through what what are the pieces that are worth strengthening, what are the pieces are worth not doing, what are the pieces that are worth increasing investment for. So the hidden research in some ways that's in university is the base of our academic staff, which are largely funded through um, uh, through revenue we get from student teaching, but an academic staff member um, by virtue of what universities do, both teaches and creates new knowledge and does research. So enormous investment there that we've yet to quite align with what the you know, overall objectives are. And now we have a complicated system where there, um, there's discussions around what are critical technologies, what are things that we have to do for sovereignty reasons, what are things that we have to do to take up serious commercial opportunities. And the um, and then when we answer some of those questions, that that, that really offers the opportunity for universities to carve out a distinctive place in, in the world. Now, one of the things, for example, that UTS has done in, in order to, um, to, to deliver on the vision that we have for our research being very strongly connected with business and industry um, is to build absolutely world-class facilities uh, that actually draw industry in to work with us and to not only solve immediate problems, but longer term problems, um, not only creation of IP, but um, workforce issues and, uh, and upskilling and so forth. So we have um, uh, a terrific uh, tech laboratory facility 
out at um, uh, Botany, out by the airport. It's it's currently 12,000 square metres. It's got everything, and you would be excited by this as a former dean of engineering, everything from earthquake shaker tables to radioanechoic chambers and uh, all of the things that you need to actually make sure that research can get translated to uh, uh, to industry. So our particular focus and probably our distinctiveness in some ways has been that drawing together of industry researchers, um, students um, around some very key assets that enable us to make a real difference. That's just a little example of what I think we have to do is to hone in the problem we're trying to solve, which part of the uh, of the uh, uh, the delivery of innovation for the benefit of Australia we, we are playing in. Uh, and double down on harnessing the investment that's needed to do that. Oh, some focus on areas of strength and potential and and where we currently excel is part of what your response is there, I sense. Correct. But, but it does require us probably to get a little sharper about what is expected of universities. And again, maybe there's too much emphasis on this accord, um, but I... The, progress, the process of having a conversation will be a very good uh, and useful focusing of the minds. Conversations are good and, and actions are good, aren't they? And you've been at the helm at UTS now for around a year after serving at, at his, as its provost um, for five years before that. And my, my sense of that five years or that six years, if we put them both together, is, is one where I sense UTS has really matured in the Australian competitive landscape. That's what it seems like to me. I wonder if looking at the last year in relation to the five before, have you had enough time and is it the right time? And are you at a point in time where a change in direction at UTS is underway through your leadership from where it was heading before? And if that's the case, what is the direction? That's a a tricky question to answer in many ways, because uh, that period has, uh, as I said earlier, been uh, disrupted by COVID. So we had to perhaps uh, do things that uh, we didn't quite plan on doing. But I was also one of the the, uh, leaders of the university who shaped the UTS 2027 strategy back when I was provost. So it it would be a bit um, odd for me to come out and say I had an alternative strategy in the back pocket uh, that I hadn't declared um, across that process. So I'm very, very committed to the outcomes that we set on that journey. That is the focus on lifetime learning, the focus on connecting our research with uh, with the right people that will benefit from it, whether it's community, business, government, um, the real strong and deep commitment that the university has to social impact. And your remarks at the beginning about my comments around Indigenous knowledges and uh, how we leverage what is one of the largest Indigenous professoriates in the country across areas from mathematics to law and engineering. Um, you know, that, that That's really um, a manifestation or one manifestation of that that um, uh, that impact so the actual end point I don't think has changed but we've learned a lot in five years and we've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work and of course the whole system around us is changing as well so you can never be complacent and say with a strategy you push the button at the beginning uh, and you'll end up at the end so my focus at the moment is very much on how we um, in the in the in the resource constraints that we have at the moment, how we best uh, ensure that we can purpose ourselves towards doing those new things that at the moment our business models are a little uncertain, but we have to experiment in. So you're right, we've done a lot of things in research. Um, I think UTS's reputation in research has grown substantially. Uh, we still have some of the most competitive courses um, 
in in the country when the international demand is really high as well. The reality is um, all of those things that sit around the edges are coming into the main game and how we how we build the, the capacity within the institution to deliver short courses, lifetime learning, engagement with industry, what, what we call enterprise learning, um, how we really do drive partnerships between business and industry, which all requires time, as you know, from academic staff and, and, and other staff. It's that shift, I think, in how we do things rather than what we're aiming to do that, uh, that's been my focus for the past year. Very fascinated with this concept of Provost having alternative strategies in their back pockets and that you didn't have one. <laughs> um, it, it causes me to go a bit off script here and just think about the advantages or otherwise of having internal appointments yeah. from DVCs into vice-chancellor positions. I mean, I'm sure we've both seen um, places where new vice-chancellors can often be you know, a, a, a new broom and bring in radical new ideas, take places on on in, into new directions, develop new cultures, develop um, new executive teams, which can be very good things and can energise and regenerate places. We've probably both also seen some places referred to as becoming destabilised by the fact that they were on good trajectories and by virtue of not looking closer to home, but appointing from afar, going through, you know, requisite periods of dramatic change. Do, do, do you have a view? I'm, I'm sure you have a view on the wisdom of appointing an internal provost to vice-chancellors. Um, but do you have a view on the phenomena of continuity and change in strategy and culture in our leadership? Look, I think, um, like most of these things, uh, it really depends on the circumstances. And, uh, it depends on what a university needs at a particular point in time. Sometimes it's been dictated by external circumstances. One of the things which I remarked on earlier about UTS is that the really very strong things that are valued by our community. So that commitment to social justice and social impact, um, the commitment to ensuring that the work we do is actually um, you know, as a public institution for the benefit of our communities. Those are very deeply held. And as a, as a, I didn't know this until after I'd been appointed as Vice-Chancellor here, every Vice-Chancellor at UTS has been an internal appointment. So there is a, there's been a continuity there in some ways that, as I, it, on my reflection, has really helped UTS to thrive because it's you don't change a culture overnight, and a culture is the you know, aggregation of a whole lot of things. Um, you really just build on what your predecessors have been able to build and what the community looks like. And while there may be changes in direction, and we had to do some quite painful things during the COVID period, including reducing our staffing and so forth, um, uh, while, while those things are there, the fundamentals are really, if the fundamentals are in place, the community, the commitment is there, the vision is in place, then radical disruption is perhaps not the right thing for an institution. And certainly that's uh, you know, a decision that UTS and its council has made over, over quite a long period of time after, um, for, for as a young university, that stability has certainly played well to our success. I had no idea when I was asking you that question that UTS was in that category. I can only imagine it's the only university of its age in Australia or perhaps anywhere that has that has that reputation i'll be intrigued to find out if there's others i'm sure someone will tell me um just getting off of that that point a little bit i want to come back um just as we move towards a close andrew to some of these issues around 
skills again and just where we're up to in demand for our universities at the moment i you know um, unsurprisingly um, we're seeing a softening i think of domestic numbers certainly in the places that i have insights into i assume that's happening in sydney at the moment um, and those of us that have been around for a while will recognize that's as common during low unemployment periods that sort of has the knock-on effect of of people being less intense or likely to go to study particularly lifelong learners but Taking a wider view, I'm getting data insights from the US at the moment of a softening of total demand, perhaps, and maybe that's related to the demographics that are particular to them, I don't know, but accompanied by a shift in the nature of demand with students and enrolments accelerating in their move from traditional face-to-face courses to shorter courses and online options. What, what what are you seeing oh, that is what are you expecting over this next couple of years? Are you anticipating that domestic demand for traditional face-to-face study will return? Or is a similar shift in the nature of demands out of the ebbs and flows of economic cycles mm-hmm. likely to take place in Australia? And and if that is your expectation, how is UTS going to respond? And how do you think the sector more widely needs to respond to Anything that's going on there? I don't think it's a homogeneous phenomenon. If you look at undergraduate education, sure, there was a a softening in applications, but not surprisingly, given the huge disruption that um, uh, senior school uh, kids had um, as the last two years of study with uh, the various lockdowns and so forth, um, you could imagine that... um, uh, and, And also with university campuses variously open or not open, the the, um, the sense that well actually I'm just going to give it a break for some students was uh, uh, was real but I, I I don't sense that undergraduate education particularly from school leavers um, and and the desire for the campus experience uh, will go away I think it might be different in the sense that there's a demand for more flexibility as people balance work and study and family and all of those sorts of things but the uh, the formative development of the networks and um, the, the range of it, you know, the um, what we used to call the soft skills and so forth is still absolutely going to be there. Even if the job market is very buoyant, that experience and that stage of life will remain. Where I do think there's the, um, the disruption is probably going to come is in that postgraduate lifetime learning area, um, career development area. Um, yeah, you would know that the uh, the data, Martin, is that you know, postgraduate enrolments, domestic students in Australia has largely been flat for a decade. Um, so it was already not necessarily serving the, the purpose for people who wanted to develop their skills. But there are still people who study in uh, you know, postgraduate further development programs or you know, whether it's courses in um clinical health because people want to work in a, as a professional in that area after after a different form of study. But the diversity is very rich there and duration, mode of delivery, level of qualification, that is all really open for grabs. And that's where I think the real innovation and pressure is going to come. Uh, and that does ebb and flow according to the um, uh, the job market and um, the, the, the wider... Um, Sort of sort of macroeconomic shifts in what the economy looks like is uh, is, is linked to that as well. So let, let me say I think um, undergraduate education probably still has a, a very strong future. 
particularly with the campus environments and uh, like UTS, as I said earlier, very much a campus environment university, but increasingly with more options for, for flexibility. Postgraduate, who knows? We're in the grand experiment and it's not played out fully yet. Grand experiments and um, questions we don't know answers to. You're, you're being very... Um very open in seeing some things that we can be sure about and other things that we we need to explore with a very active and an open mind and um isn't that what universities do <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure it's what they're intended to do and i'm sure it's what their what what their communities expect of their leaders it's great to see to see someone embracing that so so openly and so fully i i wonder if just moving it to a close with um with your recognition of what universities are for and, and your understanding of what your role needs to be to lead uts from within as its most recent internal appointment as vice chancellor has it been fun taking the step up from being a, a provost to leading uts in the last 12 months andrew look it's an enormous privilege to uh, to lead a university as a member of the senior executive uh, Obviously, the vice chancellor and the provost have have different roles. I've sometimes heard it referred to as the provosts in the home office and the vice chancellors in the foreign office, but they are diff a different role and a different dimension. So I'm really um, excited about the future of UTS. And as vice chancellor, um, I've spent a lot more time outside the university with our key stakeholders um, and working with them to understand what they what their expectations are on, on UTS in its future. We've got a terrific team. We've got fantastic staff, uh, a campus environment that's uh, almost second to none in some ways uh, in terms of um, a CBD location, great facilities. Um, my, my job, I guess, in the next um, 12 months, several years into the future is to ensure that we leverage that to make a real difference on our communities. Well, I'm sure that is going to happen, Andrew, and, and um, you've clearly got a very open mind, but some some very clear steps that you're taking to embrace that role in in the foreign office from the from the home office of, of UTS. So for giving us those multiple perspectives on a journey of a university that's taking great strides forward and setting it in the context of some really important developments in, in the sector and the communities we serve. Thank you so much for being our guest on HeadX today. A pleasure. Well, Carl, there, there was Andrew Parford of UTS. What was the biggest message that you took out, out of that interview? I think there's a lot of messages. The The point he made around being on a committee or in, in a position to set a, a long-term strategy that was heavily interrupted by the pandemic that's led to a half a billion dollar deficit um, was fascinating in terms of what they're likely to do about that and that attitude and that lens. So specifically, I liked his approach and his attitude to those messages yeah they have been massive challenges for andrew for uds and for everyone in the sector and i think attitude is absolutely right it's um it's one of not being unduly spooked by those those sorts of things but seeing opportunity to do things differently it's a little bit like your racket man analogy from the start of this episode in some ways um a broken string can be a disaster for some and an opportunity for others depending upon your response and your attitude towards it perhaps that's the case, Martin, for sure. The answer to all of that, of course, is to uh, evolve your culture so that you have an innovation or learning culture. So it becomes very natural and innate to be looking at doing things differently and to explore them and to fail fast and be curious and work together to achieve certain milestones and assess them as you go. 
And I think that's that's probably the the answer for all organizations at the moment. We're certainly seeing learning culture and culture of innovation um, being the the target culture for the vast majority of organizations, be it some of the more stoic uh, mm-hmm. in financial services firms or even the the tech companies that are, that have lived and breathed innovation from their from their inception. Yeah, I don't think we've always. It's it's funny, isn't it? Universities are seen as being so innovative by many that work within them that think they're so innovative, mm. and they, you know, their bread and butter is in research and learning, where the 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 leading edge of change and new technologies and new ways of thinking is the core of it. But um, I I found it absolutely fascinating talking to Andrew for him to reveal, which I didn't know before we had this interview, Mm. that every single one of UTS's vice chancellors had been appointed from within the ranks of the university. That's quite unusual. And on the face of it, you'd you'd think that that would be a challenge for having fresh thinking, innovative and learning cultures growing in an organisation. If you've got the benefits, of course, of continuity, being mixed with any any deficit that would be caused by not getting new attitudes, new ideas coming in at the at the most senior um, position in the organisation. I, I mean, I don't know how that plays out in the other sorts of sectors that you work in, Carl. Mm. Yeah, well, continuity is enormous. If you think about culture and how important culture is, consistency and continuity of culture goes a very, very long way, particularly if things are working well. Um, the, the flip side of that is what we see all too often, which is, uh, contamination of culture or a um, rambunctious sort of uh, attitude towards culture. So leaders come in and they toss everyone out and start again. That really means you're not just throwing out the brain's trust and the intellectual capital that's been accumulated over those years, but you're you're throwing out cultural nuances and ways of working that in large part, many of them are probably have worked and have set the organization up for success. So you're almost playing one step forward, two steps back with that approach. So I, I don't mind this. If you've got a succession process within an organization that takes culture into consideration and you are building the capability and the cultural acumen and the practices of those people as they rise to the top, I think it makes sense to hire within. The only problem is what I've said there is really the case. And what, why might it really be the case? I mean, I, I guess, you know, it is unusual to have all or even many of, of the, the, the VCs in our sector appointed from within organisations. But certainly if you've got a succession of them, I guess you have to be very conscious then and explicit about getting new thinking in if it's not automatically generated from the fact that you're enriching, enriching the gene pool in the most senior appointment. And I guess that comes in... The broader leadership team having some regular renewal and regeneration or the leadership team that you have that might be homegrown then being proactively looking for new ideas with its relationships its partnerships and its engagement with thought leadership in the sector Mm. and if that's in incentivized i don't mean necessarily even financially but if that's seen to be a favorable thing to do and becomes an operating rhythm for that group or the organization itself where you are constantly looking outside of your own borders for the next thing, you're assessing that, you're weighing that up, you're providing feasibility analysis across that and regularly implementing that and showcasing the success, it becomes a precedent for the way of working instead of circling the the wagons around um around the you know the chiefs that sit in the tents. 
Well, look, um, it's so funny that we're here, we're here sitting talking about that in the context of Australian and global universities because an organisation like HEDEX, for goodness sake, we're, we're coming to the end of our third year now mm. um, and, and a small focused organisation with a huge task that it's trying to take on. But even in that short space of time in an organisation this size, you, you have to continuously look at regeneration, rejuvenation, what 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 others are doing that are similar to you? I mean, I went, when we started this podcast, September 2020, I think we were the original podcast for the Australian higher education system. And mm. I think it's been fascinating to see a number of other podcasts pick, pick up from and emerge from the ed tech sector, from genres of universities in Australia. I think more people that are involved in the conversation, the better. But we, it's been a great year for, for HEDEX in 2022 and having our first three live events through mm. different Australian capital cities mm. and engaging in a very direct way with so many member organisations from across the from across the nation and across the sector in having a debate beyond a, a, a microphone and a podcast and a thought piece of live events at, at, at addressing some really big topics. And Martin, th- look, the, the Racket Man was, was 33 years ago. And what I thought I knew about innovation then pales at insignificance compared to what I've learned now for largely from my the tech companies that we've worked with for the last 20 years. So I think the uh, for us to put down some of those learnings and the way that they operate and have been very successful and think that we can do it better or differently would be a grave error. So I love the fact that in HeadX itself, we have borrowed those practices and we've evolved now that to make sure that we're delivering value. And it's not about evolution or innovation for the sake of it. It's understanding and reading the market and being very customer centric to understand, to recognize what it is that our audience and our market and our you know, universities need to hear. And how can we broker some of these relationships? How can we introduce them to the world's let the world's best thinking and experience so that we can all learn and grow from that? Yeah. Well, you've said a couple of things there that I think are hugely important. It's, it's, you know, if, if I spent a long time working in universities around the globe, and I can't get over how in the two and a half years since I've been out of that single employer system, how much wherever you work and whichever university you're in, your, your view of the world and your experience is constrained to a significant extent by what happens in your own institution. Mm. So to now have had 63 conversations with global leaders of higher education systems, I, I can't get over how different they all are, mm. yet there are some common themes and streams to it all. And, and when we got to the 50th episode and had Michael Crow of ASU as a bit of a, a signature guest, it was great to then take stock of what had 50 conversations told us and to be able to curate a framework of the new leadership agenda facing the sector, to be able to generate that as a book that's that's getting published at the end of this year by Routledge, and to now learn that we're going to have the chance to launch that book at the University's Australia Conference in February mm. in front of 1,200 leaders in the sector is, is hugely satisfying in terms of what you can do if you can bring some experience and diverse experience to bear on all of the conversations that are possible across the sector. I think that's also interesting because you and I are uncomfortable bedfellows for want of much better expression. You know, you have had a lifetime inside a, inside a variety of organizations and I'm largely unemployable and has never had a job. So, you know, I've run my own organization for my entire career. I'm 51. And so I, I'm not used to a lot of the 
the processes and the systems that you speak to. And that's largely where our audience live. So to be able to influence that from a more dynamic perspective externally as an entrepreneur has been uh, an interesting challenge and something I think that you temper with me, which is a, a tremendous way for us to move forward. You're absolutely right, Carl, because that is um, that is much of the value that I see from having spent so much time in the sector in you and I interacting. We are we are from different places and we are different breeds, and I think that's much of the value. If 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 I was having these conversations with someone else that had forty years in the sector, including in executives of many universities, I wouldn't be having the conversations and contrasts that you and I are able to have with your challenging questions of why it's like that <laughs> and and your and your mm. and your provocative questions about why not like this that you see in financial services tech and other commercial environments and mm. when we go back to that where your ceo and vc comes from from within your university or from within the sector from elsewhere what whichever of those choices you might make what are you doing to make sure that you're getting some broad view of the sector as a whole that's married up with some challenging views of why the sector's like this to really guide a continuously innovative culture in your university and the sector as a whole. I think that's what our accord is looking to do. I think it's what our, our sector and all of our universities need to do. And I'm delighted that you and I will be making that a focus for the even richer program of activities we've got lined up as HeadX for 2023. Absolutely. Thanks, Martin. That's all we have time for on this episode of HeadX. Hey.